The weather is warm and sunny in the quaint town of Woodridge, New Jersey, eerily similar to April 19, 2002, almost exactly 18 years prior. On that day, Trish Bartek was in her front yard gardening alongside her two-year-old son, Jack. Her biggest concern at the time was the well-being of her young boy, who had been dealing with health issues ever since his birth. On this day, he was sitting right beside her, safe and sound, but there was a different sense of unease on her mind. Bartek, a keen observer, couldn't help but notice a rickety white van parked across the street. She called her husband at work, who tried to put her mind at ease, but she could not shake the hunch and dialed the Woodridge Police Department. When officers arrived, the owner of the van claimed that he was lost and stopped to get directions, but Bartek insisted a report be written up. Nearly 18 years later, Bartek limps through the same garden, now hamstrung by multiple sclerosis, which greatly restricts any movement in her left leg. She says she knew the second that she saw the van that something was off, and months later, she would have her fears confirmed. Poetically, as she walks and tells her story, the letter U, written in cursive, peeks out from the neck of her t-shirt, part of a tattoo that spells out unbreakable down her spine. As the youngest of six children, her father passed away when she was just seven years old. Needless to say, Bartek has faced many hurdles in her life. But nothing could prepare her for the paralyzing news that not only was the man in the beat-up white van sent to rape her, specifically in front of her son, the man that sent him was her own cousin-in-law. That was written by Jack Bartek, a sophomore at Montclair State University. It was his submission for a journalism contest I've helped organize called The Big Scribble. And it's a reminder that great writing doesn't always require age or experience or an Ivy League pedigree. It requires heart. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Andrea Kramer, who you know is the Emmy Award-winning HBO Real Sports correspondent, the NFL Network correspondent, but who is still, deep down, the hard-charging print reporter who started her career in the early 1980s as a sports editor at the Mainline Chronicle in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. This is episode number 153. Let's play some games. Okay, Andrea, first of all, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it very much. Nice to uh, nice to see you in front of me, even though this is just an audio podcast. It's good to have you here. Well, I'm looking at you in your beautiful setting, and uh, I'm a little envious, but I'm happy to be here, Jeff. Well, let me ask you first, actually, because I'm looking at your office and you, you just sent me pictures of your office and you've, I don't know, thousands of newspapers, old newspapers in your office. Uh, what, uh, explain this, please. So I have always collected stories and it kind of dates back to when I was I don't know, maybe 11 or 12 years old. And I read everything I could ever find. I grew up in Philadelphia. So we had the Philadelphia Daily News, Philadelphia Bulletin, Philadelphia Inquirer, and of course, the New York Times. And the whole week of the Super Bowl, I would cut out the articles previewing the game, tape it on pieces of paper, and the morning of the game, present it to my parents as a scouting report for the game. So I was either doomed to be a newspaper writer or a PR person or some kind of journalist 
because I started that really young and I have no idea where it came from, but I've always been fascinated with that. And then as I progressed in my career, and I, I will give credit, my dad did this too. My dad had copi- hundreds and hundreds of files. He was an attorney and then a judge, so he had files for his work, but he would always clip out newspapers. And when I got into the sports business, he would then clip out stories for me and send them to me. And, and I still actually have the clippings from my dad because he's passed away and it just is sort of a, a wonderful memory of him. But I've always just collected this. So in my office is basically a file for every story I've ever done. But I have files for teams, leagues, individuals that literally go back to the 80s. Of course, I was five then, right? But, you know, but it still <laughs> goes back. I was just learning to read. But it goes, it goes all the way back. And part of me has always said, there's gold in them, their files, because if I can find one little tidbit of information that could help me to prepare for an interview, it's worth it. And my husband, who is an archaeologist, has always, I've always joked that I'm going to get buried under these papers one day. And he goes, I'll excavate you. So, <laughs> you know, there's a, it, it just, it's, it's, I, I, I love computers and I love computer files. And I've actually, my son has introduced me to a new way to, 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 manage information like this, but I still love my files and I still use them. Now you said we talked a little bit before I started recording about uh, the demise of Sports Illustrated and I'm an SI alum and you obviously Sports Illustrated has been a very influential, has had an influential impact on your career. You said you have, you know, all, if not all the issues, most of the issues. And I kind of wonder for, for us as an industry, as a profession, what does the demise and what seems at this point inevitable uh, elimination of Sports Illustrated sort of mean or do or represent for you? I say this to you rhetorically because I think I know the answer, but maybe for some of your listeners, they don't understand the impact of the Sports Illustrated cover. I knew when the magazine was coming, I would think, who's going to be in the cover? Who's going to be in the cover? What's it going to look like? Those pictures, that was that was so it was, it was just such an amazing thing to look forward to each week. Uh, as you alluded to, I have virtually every issue dating back to the 70s. I remember at some point, my parents, when I went to college, they kind of got rid of my room and my mother was going to throw them. I'm like, no, no, don't touch my Sports Illustrated. Get rid of everything else, not the Sports Illustrated. They just, I, the, the writing was absolutely superlative. Uh, there's still stories that we all remember, right? Literally, we remember the leads to them, the pictures, Hans Klutmeier, and, and, and just the incredible photos that, that they had. And to me, it was, it was the gold standard of journalism, not just sports journalism, but of journalism. And something to aspire to, something to learn from in every way, the writing, the, the storytelling, the way that that the pictures did capture the, the images of, of these events and these athletes. And it was extremely meaningful to me. And to watch it over the years, the magazine literally gets smaller, right? And now, since it's been purchased by the Maven, uh, to watch it basically disintegrate, obviously, we're not getting it weekly. And then to see writer after writer, terrific writers, Chris Ballard, uh, writers of that, of that just in, in incredible excellence that they just have gone away. It's really difficult. It's, it's hard. And in so many ways, 
it is illustrative of, of the, the profession, the print profession as a whole. I mean, I'm still a dinosaur. I still get three newspapers delivered to, to me. And I, at, at one point I was getting everything I would get, I would get sports illustrated and, and inside sports. And of course the national and uh, the sporting news you, uh, you name it. And then, of course, ESPN Magazine. I always loved it because I always loved having it in my hand. And, of course, I love to do the tear sheets that I can put into my files that I'm going to get buried under one day in my office. What's the, uh, what's the issue? If I say to you, Sports Illustrated cover, what's the cover that pops in your head? Like, what's your cover? Michael, jo- Michael Jordan coming back when right. he came back. That, that went, just that solitary picture of him, I'm back. Oh, yeah. That was a good So I, I remember that. Um, and... Uh, this is newer. Um, well, 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 the old one, and then the new incarnation of it. Of course, Mark Spitz with the gold medals around his chest, wearing the, yeah. the little, uh, um, you know, the little little bathing suit there, and then of course replicated by Michael Phelps, who exceeded his his haul of gold with the eight gold medals. There's just certain that the the pictures were just were were just amazing, and um, and you know, I, I I would study them right because anytime you had an event. Right, you you'd be able to see who was in the background, and you'd see who's on the sideline of the field, or what what the what the expressions were of the of the fans in the stands cheering, whatever. Just used to I used to parse everything, and um, I'm still looking at a whole bunch of them sitting in my office, but it's just it's not the same. I just want to prove my geek my sports geek credentials to you that the other night I couldn't sleep, and I pulled out an old SI, and it was. 1974, Bruce Hardy in Utah, schoolboy athlete, best schoolboy athlete. And I was sitting there in Southern California, probably three in the morning, reading a 1974 essay about Bruce Hardy, best schoolboy athlete. Yeah, just everything from, from the, 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 the future stars to the where are they nows to you, you name it. It was, but also, look, it, it was a completely different time in the sense that this is how you consumed a lot of your sports news. And I think that the moment that the internet exploded, then for every, uh, certainly every weekly, you had to you had to rethink how you were going to write. You could uh, the, the game stories. I mean, for me, when when I'm reading a Peter King game story, when I'm or Mike Silver, someone like that, I still know that I'm learning a lot that was not in the local papers or even the national papers. So there was, there was still so much to be mined from that, but there's no question that, that they've had to adapt. All print has had to adapt with the, with the uh, onset of the internet, but it's just, it's just sad that this iconic brand is, is, is going away. Even though you watch, I'm sure they will still find a way to do the swimsuit issue. Of course. Of course. And swimsuit mugs and swimsuit calendars. That's and right. Sports Illustrated presents the hotties of swimsuit past and right. on and on and on. The listicle of your choice. I bet you and I are the same in this regard. When I was a kid and throughout my career, the only disappointing week for me was swimsuit issue week where I'd be like, ugh, fine, okay. And like, like I would actually, I'm the guy, I'm the guy who read the articles in the swimsuit <laughs> issue. I would. I would read the articles because they'd have would like... You, read, would you, you, can, you can tell us now. It's just you and me here, Jeff. Did you also read just the articles in Playboy? Maybe. Actually, I don't uh, want no. to brag, but I once wrote a story for Penthouse. So right. uh, there's my creds. But uh, no, I just... I'm like... Jeff, you. I'm going to break it to you. 
Maybe not a lot of people read it. Yeah, I don't think so many. There I think they go. paid two bucks a word though. So, you know. Uh, that's um, all right. There you yeah. go. You, uh, no, sorry. So you were, a, uh, you were a ballet dancer by trade. 1980, not by trade, but your background is in ballet dancing. You were a diehard sports fan, obviously. Um, you're known for TV, but in 1982, you start as a freelance writer for the Mainline Chronicle, which at the time was the largest weekly newspaper in Pennsylvania. How did that start, and how did that sort of experience uh, impact your career going forward? Well, I did dance, as you pointed out, for 20 years, uh, companies in Philadelphia and in New York throughout high school, throughout college, and then um, my first year, which was my only year of law school in New York, I was dancing there as well. I left law school, wasn't for me, took a leave of absence, but decided never to go back. And uh, I left New York and came back to Philadelphia, where I was still dancing. Uh, by then, I was working with uh, as the company manager of a new company that was launched by a former principal dancer for the Pennsylvania Ballet. So I was teaching for him, working for him, dancing for him. I was his company manager, so I was writing National Endowment for the Arts grants. And I, I loved writing. I was always a really good writer. So I started doing some freelance writing for this weekly local paper in Ardmore, Pennsylvania which was a suburb of Philadelphia where I lived and grew up. And I was doing dance reviews and theater reviews and sort of some lifestyle type things. But I'd always let them know that I love sports. I, was, I felt that I was pretty knowledgeable. And every now and then they would throw me a bone and I would get to do a sports story. How much and, are you getting? How much are you getting per story? Oh gosh, I don't even remember who, you know, at that point, I was just happy to be writing, and I, I, I don't remember. I remember what I made in my first full-time job with them, though. What'd you make? $18,000. Nice. That was my first job in 1982, my first full-time job with them in 1982. Um, and by the way, when I went to NFL Films as a producer, their first female producer two years later in 1984, I doubled my salary. I thought I was the richest person on earth. I was making $36,000. It was It was. The, the greatest thing I felt I was could be independent of my parents. But anyway, so I started to do this freelance writing and, um, and they would throw me sports ideas every now and then. And I was interning at the Philadelphia Eagles, which at that time meant in 1982, I could, 1982, 83, I could um, transcribe press conferences. So Dick Vermeil, who was the head coach, retired. It's the, the infamous burned at, I'm burned out from football. I transcribed that. So I kind of had a pretty good sense of Vermeil. So I pitched a story to the mainline Chronicle. Let me do this interview with Dick Vermeil, now private citizen, and he lives on the main line. And they said, fine, if you can get it, you can do it. So I got the interview and there's a picture of me that sits in my office my hair at that point was still very long because I was dancing. It was down to my waist. It was pulled back very tightly. I, am I allowed to use any kind of profanity here? Of course you are. I was scared shitless. I was so scared my first interview. And I looked so serious. But that was my first story, my first cover story. And as the weeks progressed, uh, one day, the sports, excuse me, the managing editor of the newspaper came to me and he said, our sports editor slash got fired, quit. And are you interested in it? And I said, wow, 
um, yeah. And he goes, but he was very forthright. He said, you're done with dancing. This is a 24 seven job. There's no more dancing. There's no more ballet. You, this is a full-time commitment. And uh, I, there's a snobby part of me that always said, Ivy League graduates shouldn't be ballet dancers. And I knew that when I found something that was really going to fulfill that passion for me, I would, I would leave ballet behind. And I did cold Turkey, very difficult. And I started as a sports editor and I was writing, developing everything, writing six to seven stories a week. I would literally go down to the production plant in Oxford, Pennsylvania and lay out the paper. A little exacto knife. Just the sports section. The sports section. Yep. The sports section, which when I took over, I I'm, was very proud of this. When I took over the paper, it was a broadsheet and, um, and they covered a lot of the local sports and I wanted to have bigger and better things. So I, I created a separate pullout, a tab pullout called sports weekly. And the premise of it was there was a cover story of a topic of an issue and then inside, I would always write that story. And then there would be maybe three or four sidebars to that story. And then I wrote a football column and I had somebody that wrote an NBA column, an NHL column, and an NBA column. Uh, would I say that? Baseball, football, and hockey. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I basically turned into a salesperson in addition to my writing and editing and laying out, which was... This is Andrea Kramer. I'm the sports editor of the largest weekly newspaper in Pennsylvania. And I would get any story because you could do it over the phone. I wasn't going there. We had no budget. But I got these stories and I was very proud of that. The ad people love me because I took the broadsheet and turned it into this 16 to 20 page tabloid. So they were happy. And I created something and I was really proud of that. And it all started with with writing. And to this day, I tell students where where I teach at Boston University I tell whoever asks me wants to get into the business write 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 it's the most important uh, skill that you could have and that you can you will always need and always use yeah you are um, for my money one of the best interviewers out there you've always been one of the best interviewers out there you're very you have a very long um, and storied career as a as an interviewer like you are the person who knows how to interview people thank you what do you bring to the table that makes you good at interviewing people? I think that some of the keys are preparation. One of my old bosses, who you probably know, the great John Walsh, uh, who was the, my boss for years and years at, at ESPN and was at Rolling Stone and Inside Sports, just a terrific journalist. I was going into an interview one time and we were I was just going over some talking points and some ideas with him. And he kind of joked and he goes, I think you know him better than he knows himself. And for me, the preparation is your armor. And the more preparation you have, the better you're going to be, not just in asking the questions, but in the key listening and following up. And then, of course, if you are in an investigative situation, you always want to try to know every single detail you can because that's where you can challenge your subject. So the preparation is key. Uh, Listening, listening. Everybody says they listen, but they don't really listen. Listening for keywords, key phrases, things that you can. I always call it with my students. I talk about peeling back the onion, delving deeper. Whatever somebody says, there can always be a follow-up that can get them to continue their line of, of thinking, their line of speech, 
that you can get deeper into, into how they're really feeling about something. And then trying to make a connection with the subject, which does not mean you get buddy-buddy with them. It always makes me, always kind of irks me when I hear journalists say, oh yeah, we're, we're friends. No, you're not friends. You may be friendly and there's a big difference. And if you're friends, you need to revisit that. I, I, I just have always felt that there is, there is, there's got to be a line there that you can draw, but you can find a way to connect with somebody. And I think that that's important because if, if the person feels a connection to you, if they feel you're really listening, which means you're really intent upon kind of caring what they have to say, which will lead you to the proper follow-ups, I think that those are all ingredients for, for, a really, for a really good interview. So you do not have, like you go into an interview, you obviously you don't have a list of questions you're going to ask in order because that would ruin everything. Do you, do you go in with a knowledge of what I want to ask this person? Do you have it in front of you? Is it just in your head? Are you, is it almost like, like when I write a book proposal, the book ends up almost nothing like the book proposal because right, it's right. going to take me on this trip because I write a proposal about a Walter Payton biography, but then I interview 700 people. It'd be almost weird if the thing became the same thing. So do you go in with the plan and does it ever actually end up matching the plan of the interview you had? I go in with talking points and questions. I, I, I'm one of those people. I have that brain. I like to write things down. So I will read everything I can get my hand on, listen to what I can get my hand on. And then I take notes and I reread the notes because I want to just kind of get it embedded in my brain. And I try not to look at them. So I was interviewing Pete Rose one time at his restaurant in Florida. We were sitting at a little square table. We were sitting next to each other, not across from each other. And I have my notes there. And he looks at me and he says, looks me in the eye and says, you haven't broken eye contact once to look down at your notes. And I said, and I, kept looking right at him and I said, that's right. It's like Linus, they're my security blanket. So I have them there to remind myself of things because the last thing you wanna do is, is have notes and look like you're reading from a script or anything like that, but there are things that I always wanna remember. And then one of the things that I always tell my students, which I think is really interesting, is if you are interviewing someone Again, the listening and the follow-ups are key, but somebody may go off on some long diatribe and there could be five follow-ups in there. So without breaking eye, con eye contact, you need to take your pen and you just need to write a keyword down on the paper. It will help you remember the follow-up because guaranteed, you're not gonna remember all the different things to follow up on. And so I, I always have pen and paper hand. I always, always have my pen handy, gotta do it. It's like a security, right? But but let me ask you a question, a personal question, if I may. Please. Do you coordinate the color pen with what you're wearing? I do not. You can note, she says with a big smile. <laughs> and the appropriate follow-up would be what, Jeff? What would be the appropriate follow-up? Why do you coordinate the pen with, your, uh, with what you're wearing? I don't know. I just do. It's just, it's, do you really? It's, I, I do. I do. But I'm not alone. So does Bryant. Brian Gumble. What if you're wearing something, if you're wearing something like a bright green? Okay. Hold on for a second. Okay. I'm going to say, since you, I'm watching you, Andrea, but she, right, right, video, can, she she's right. going to her desk. She's going behind right. her desk. Okay. This is oh my God. Here. She's showing me a big basket of pens. You are more psychotic than I am. Wait, hold on. Oh my God. That, that, that's number two. And that's number three. 
Wow. I'm looking at probably about 70 pens of different colors. Yeah, it's, it's a little strange. Wait, it's, wait, I can't let this go. Why do you do this? Well, uh, I have my notes and I like to put them in different colors so that I can, they're, they're not actually color coded for a certain thing, but they're color coded to pick, my eye will pick up on different things. We all have our little picadillas, right? All right, Kramer, so, wait a second. What I do is I okay. take notes, so this is video. I've made a sign for myself, which is, it's a triple B like that. And it, right. means, it means go back up to something. So it's a- Oh, interesting. Do you have a, do you have little notes in your notes that you use little signals and codes and stuff or no? Well, I, 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 have, I have questions written down and then I have tons of notes in all those different colors on the margins. And I just want to be able to look. I am I am very lucky that for shows like Real Sports HBO, Real Sports that I work with the best producers that that are in the business. It's that simple. So I always have another set of eyes and ears that are listening and and uh, keep me honest, as I say, to make sure that I touch on all the things that I want to touch on. But but ultimately, especially for kids that are starting off now, they don't have that. So you have to be your own producer, director, correspondent, researcher. You've got to be able to do it all. And I think, Jeff, that that's one thing that, that's hugely important. And this was part of the other question that you asked before, which is how, has my, how did my experience at the newspaper affect where I am today? Hugely so, because I did everything. Right. And when I went to NFL Films with my first job in television production, I did everything. Those days, you were like your own little production company. You did your research. You cut the footage. You, you, you literally, we, at that time, we worked behind Moviolas, which were the original uh, editing machines that they used even in Hollywood. So I spliced together my tape, and we put everything together. I scored the music. I wrote the copy. So you were like your own little production company. And the more that you could do, I mean, going out and understanding layout, things like that, I just, I did everything. And as I moved up in my career, the fact that I was doing so many different things, when I would go out in the field, for example, as a correspondent, and I would work with uh, a crew and the, the cameraman might say to me, well, we can't get that shot. And I would say, oh, yes, we can, because I've gotten that shot before in another story. So you, you, the ability to have, have done so many things, I learned from one of my great mentors, the late Steve Sable from NFL Films, who is going into the Hall of Fame this year, never ask someone to do something you're not willing to do yourself. And when I was a young producer and it was a Saturday night and I was a big fat loser working in the office until 10 p.m. at night, teetering on the, on the ladder in the vault to get the 1960 championship can of footage, there was only one other light on at NFL Films, and that was Steve Sables. Right. And he he worked that hard and I learned that uh, when the boss does it, it's a pretty great image to, to put out there for the people that work for you. Well, don't you just think, I just think at the end of the day, you know, I'm sure we both do a lot of like, you do talk to a lot of college students and do all this and they have, well, what's the key and what's the key and what's the key. At the end of the day, I always say, there'll always be a better writer. You know, there'll always be a better person on TV than you. There'll always be a better writer than me. There's always, but like you can control how, how much you bust your ass and you could work harder than the person next to you. And at the end of the day, I just feel like that is the number one thing by far. How hard are you willing to work on this? No, no doubt. There is nothing, there is nothing, nothing, nothing that replaces hard work. You cannot cut corners. You cannot, you, you just can't. And if you, and that will end up being the difference. 
and you're, you're completely right. And, but it, it also works that way in sports, right? Sure. Because how many people do we know who are the, are the greatest athletes, the greatest talent, but they weren't watching film. They didn't put it in the extra time on the field, after the field, whatever it is. And their careers were never commensurate with their talent, the right. production of their careers. And then conversely, those who just work so hard and, and seemingly willed themselves to greatness, I think that whatever it is, it, it's the hard work. And you also have to define hard work because as you kind of alluded to, I don't want to generalize about, about kids today, but there's certainly a strong sense of entitlement about a lot of kids and they, they want a lot of things handled to the handed to them. And it's, it's the ones who literally will do anything to learn, to get better. Those are the ones and will help others and will help others. Yeah. Those are the ones that are going to really make it. They will. They are the ones who are going to be the next generation of us. Hopefully, who are going to who are going to exceed what even we've accomplished. I always think the two things are: work your ass off, and don't be an asshole to other people. Right. It's a yeah. long life. I always say it's a long life. Right. You always want it. You want to make. You want to build your sources. You want to build relationships. It's all about relationships. I agree. And you want the relationships to be built when you don't need something. So that I always say. You don't want it so that every time somebody gets an email from Jeff Perlman, oh my God, what does he want now? Right. Oh God, Andrea Kramer's on my inbox. What does she want now? You don't want that. You just want to be able to reach out and just say, hey, just thinking about you. Don't want anything. You know, just, just, I mean, you don't say that, but that's the, that's the, that's the implication there. But building relationships, especially Jeff, I think in the business today, because there's such a proliferation of writers and broadcasters and this and that and and at the end of the day i do believe that if if people have a choice they're going to go with the person with whom they have a relationship and of course that they trust and that's and, and building trust is all about building relationships i read something you said that i actually disagreed with and i think this is interesting in regard to interviewing i am a fan of softball 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 harder question like, mm -hmm. that's just been my way. Softball, softball, softball. I'm not going to give you the What's hard question. What's a softball? What's a softball? No, I mean, like, if I'm doing a story about, let's say, an athlete, and I have to ask about some sexual assault incident, mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask that first. I'm going to ask about right. their life and blah, blah, blah. But I read somewhere you say you think it's better to kind of go in more straight and more direct. No, do you just say, did I misread? No, 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 no. I think you misread something. No, what, what, you, may, what you may have I've read that I said is about you never misrepresent what you want to talk about. Never say you're not going to talk about something and then ask oh, it. I see. Can't do that. But of course, listen, I, all the entities that I work for led by, of course, HBO Real Sports, we have two, we have two tenets. We do not pay for interviews and we do not put parameters on what we could ask. That's good. So I always say, I have to ask, you don't have to answer, but you can't tell me what I can ask. Because if you, if you want to try to do that, then we, we won't turn down the interview. I mean, I don't care who it's with, but if they say, hey, we're not going to talk about that, or say, listen, we're going to ask you, I'm not going to embarrass you if, uh, with it, but got to ask you and you can, you can answer as you like, but no, no, we, we, we have to be able to ask these questions. And you never give, I tell my students, never, you can give ideas about what you want to talk about. You never share your questions with people. Because first of all, you don't know that those are going to end up being your questions. 
you could learn something in the course of the interview and go a completely different direction. And you never want somebody to come back and say, well, I thought it was about this and this. You don't ever want to do that. Um, I specifically actually tell the students to leave the hardest material for the end, the most controversial material for the end, but make sure you still have time for it. Yeah. Because if somebody knows your, if somebody knows that bombshell's coming, that bombshell question is coming. Hey, well, I gotta go. We gotta. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa! I got another couple. Of, uh, you know, we've had already thirty minutes, so you have to be careful that you don't sort of uh, don't trick yourself and and think that you're just gonna ask. I mean, I like to say I don't ask softball questions, but as, to use your parlance, and I, I don't think you, and I don't think you do either. But, I throw in a couple. I throw right, in a couple. Right. You know. Right. Right. Um, well, you did a, uh, I just watched a clip uh, from, I think, 2016 with the, uh, the hot yoga guru. And I'll probably play it real quick right here. I don't need to do that. Rape or sexually assault? Sexual assault. If I need a woman, I can make a line. The most beautiful, famous, rich women in the world, if I have to sleep with women, then I have to sleep, you know, 5,000 girls every day. 5,000 women a day want to sleep with you? Yeah. They commit suicide. Four of them. You're saying that four different women. Four different women. Each killed themselves because yeah. you wouldn't have sex with All them. All right. Why I have to harass women? People pay one million dollars for one drop of my sperm. I can make million dollars a day, every drop. You are that idiot or dumb to believe those trash. The women are the trash? Yeah. I've had this happen. Like my. My infamous story for my career was John Rocker at Sports Illustrated, and you're sitting mm-hmm. there with someone, you, you can't stand anything about this person, but you're listening to him. And you're sitting across from this guy, and he's disgusting. And he's dis- disgusting. How much of your disgust, if any, can you show during an interview, or do you just, how do you do it? How do you sit across from someone who you just find abhorrent and not take the bait? Well, first of all, as an objective journalist, you can't go in thinking that you are going to let your opinion like that uh, play out in, in, in the interview situation. I was, I was very pleased. I was, I was kind of honored when Gail King's interview with R. Kelly came out last year. I had a number of people that emailed me and said, this was you and Bikram Chowdhury. This was you and Bikram, the, the, the Bikram yoga guru way before Gail King. The way that you handle it is really good. I, my, my producer and I had spoken specifically about the demeanor that was going to be important throughout this interview. When you have someone who is saying really outrageous things, there's no need to egg them on. If somebody is... I, I, I don't like to use this example, but someone's going to hang themselves, just keep handing them the rope. And that's what it was like. So for me, one of the techniques that I was, I was using was repeating what somebody says. And as I, as I share with my students, sometimes that can come back and backfire on you because you say something outrageous and I go, wait a minute, let me make sure I understood what you said. And I repeat it and you go, oh, wait, wait, I actually, wait, I didn't mean that. Right. So that's the risk you always run. With him, because English was not his first language, I could kind of do it more along the lines of, let me make sure I understand literally what you're saying. But he just kept, he just kept going. 
In fact, with the clip that you're probably going to play, he said it twice, almost as though I wasn't going to understand it the first time. Um, but you just sit there, and it was the one time, I, I'm, I will admit, I pride myself on making the, my, keeping and retaining, as I mentioned before, eye contact with my subject. But when he said that, it was the first time that I broke eye contact, and I looked at my producer who was sitting at about 2 o'clock for me. Because it was just, again, excuse my French, did he just fucking say that? Right. Did I just hear what he said? Did he seriously say that? But um, sorry for the for the profanity, uh, folks. But that's really what was going through my head at that moment. First, I want to say your language is fucking abhorrent, and I'm <laughs> fucking disgusted. Second of all, um, do you, as someone is talking, like in this case, he's saying this stuff. Is there somewhere in your brain where you're thinking, <laughs> you know, yes? Thank oh, of you. course. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. there's, there's no doubt. Because also when you've, been, when you've been doing this business for quite a long time, as the interviewer, you know what are going to be the memorable sound bites. I hear, I hear things that could be the opening of the piece. I hear things, oh, God, we've got like six different bites that could be the ending of the piece. And that's also dating back to my producing uh, background that I, that I would think that. But... Um, uh, yeah, you're you're always hearing things that you that you uh, that you know are going to be good. You know that are going to be good. What is the? Um, I always ask this. What is the angriest someone has been at you in your career as a journalist? Wow, gosh, that's a really really good question. Boy, I'd have to think about that. Um, this is why I make the big bucks. Well, I mean, Bikram stormed out of our interview oh he and, did oh yeah have you not seen the piece i saw it when it ran but I'm... no okay all right let me teach you something first of all if you're going to talk about something you better know what you're talking about dude i have the thing but it's not right. on youtube available right yeah um i'll send you a private link Please can't do. share can't okay. share um what ended up happening was he walked out of the interview um and he we were in a huge private home where he was staying because we were we were three hours outside of Mumbai in a private gated community which is where he was doing his teacher training for his yoga with armed guards and uh, he was staying in this huge prop the huge house on the property so he goes upstairs my producer went up knocked on the door to see if he was going to come back down and he didn't, he didn't answer. So we're just standing there and we're standing in the foyer of the house. And there's this huge staircase that goes up to the second floor. He comes out and he's standing on the balcony. And uh, we kind of less than affectionately called it the balcony scene. And he starts screaming at us, screaming at us, um, really using, uh, some really nasty language and really offensive things. And it was just one of those situations where not even a wordsmith of your caliber could write something that would be as illustrative of this person as what he presented himself that moment. Wow. And he was, he was angry and uh, it was, a, it was, it was, it was a little scary because Obviously, it was myself, my producer, my two producers were women. We had uh, all-male crew. Our fixer, which is 
Do you know what a fixer is? It's a person who you hire when you go abroad to shoot, who he knows the language, he knows the customs, he can do anything for you, whatever you need done. He was there and we needed to get out of there because it was, it was getting to be a scary situation. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's taken up a new hobby during the pandemic. I knit coyotes. That's wonderful. Like, felt coyotes for people going through tough times? No, dead coyotes. What? I'm just so bored. So I started walking around the neighborhood at night, looking for the mangled carcasses of coyotes who roam the streets. I made you a blanket. I think his name was Craig. You know this is supposed to be an ad for 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You know, great stuff. The website's 503-sports.com. Dad, we're 100 weeks into this pandemic. Is anyone really listening? Where's Craig? He's dead, Dad. He's dead. I showed up unannounced at J.R. Ryder's house about two years ago. Because mm-hmm. I, I have a book I'm working on about the Lakers. And um, I knock on J.R. Ryder's door at like 10 in the morning. And he is not happy to see me. And it is kind of scary for a minute, right? Do you find that having a crew with you sort of gives you less of a uh, sense of dread or terror when you're going into uncomfortable interview situations? Oh, absolutely. No, no question. But it would, be, it would be akin to early in my career going into a locker room, and we know how, what a nasty work such, workplace that can be, with a microphone that says ESPN which is a lot different than when I went in as a 24 year old young writer for the mainline Chronicle and nobody knows who I am and, and they don't know who I work for. And it's, it's totally different if you go in with the, certainly with the imprimatur of a network, but also when you're going in with a crew, there's, there's no doubt that you feel a little bit more, a little bit more protected, but, um, I'm trying to, I, I, it's, it's a great question you asked, and I'd have to think of other, other times that I might have felt um, really threatened. But, uh, I mean, look, I've worked in parts of, of L.A. where we had police protection uh, because we, we were doing stories that were, that involved gangs and gang-related activity. There's, there's been that. Um, but, yeah, I think for the most part, I mean, I, I'm not, look, I'm not, uh, I'm not going into wartime Iraq, thank God. Right. So, but but yeah, I mean, there are there are times that um, you just always have to be smart when you when you're out there and, and realize that uh, you know don't be a hero. That's that's the thing. You can be a great investigative journalist, but you don't have to be a hero. Let me ask you a final question. It's 2020, and obviously coronavirus, awful. Uh, newspapers hitting the crapper. Sports Illustrated hitting the crapper. On and on and on and on. You teach journalism. I teach journalism. Should we be advising people to go into this field? Do you watch the presidential press conferences? I do. Some of them. Right. Well, right. I, I feel that I need to definitely temper my consumption. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where, where would we be without the journalists asking the questions? Yeah. They have to be good questions. Yeah. No, they have to be objective questions that your audience and your readership want to know. I think that the profession of journalism is more vital than ever. And I also think that unlike when you and I were coming up in the business, there's so many different outlets. We had newspapers or magazines. Now newspapers and magazines are going away, but you've got this, this behemoth called the internet. 
Yeah. So there's so many different things that you that you can put out there that you can get your your work out there. Uh, and worse comes to worse, you you put it out there yourself and you try to tweet all about it. And I'm not that social media is a toxic cesspool. But if you're promoting work that you're doing, I, I hope it works for young journalists. I'm not advocating that. But the point is, is that there's so many different outlets that 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 people have today. But oh my gosh, I think that journalism is more valuable than ever. And I, I hope that we get, we get strong, intelligent, young people who are going into the business, who understand how to ask questions, understand the necessity of it, understand, don't make it about me, make it about trying to find answers for, for the public out there. That's what's, that's what's so important. And I think the toxic, the, the, the toxin that we had over the last 15 years in our profession is the increased number of people making the stories about themselves. First person, me, I, this, you know, I, I feel like that overtook this industry to a certain degree. Right, so what I just said, so you agree with me. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. absolutely. But that also, I think, Jeff, I think that's also uh, related to the advent of talk radio and of opinion shows because they're not journalists, are they? Are they journalists in the way that we think of it? They're, they're opinionators, they're bloviators, and they certainly serve a purpose. And gosh, people like to listen to them and, and argue with them and, and, and throw things at the, at the set or, or at your, their computers. But I don't consider that journalism. I consider that uh, it, it has, its, it has its, own, its own place, and, um, but it's not objective journalism in any way. I agree. I saw the other day on social media, uh, Megan Kelly talked about during my career in journalism. And I was like, no, like you can call yourself what you want. You can call yourself TV You can call yourself entertainment. Maybe you can call yourself a reporter and some journalist. No, you're not a journalist. Ha- Hanny's not a journalist. MSNBC, like across the spectrum. There's a difference between entertainment and journalism. And I hate that people blur that line. So I'm with you. I, I agree with you. I-, I-, I completely agree with you. And, um, you can do things that are that are entertaining, that are informative and things, but you can still be the the objective journalist. And I think that that's, I, I, I just always hope that there's there's a role for that. Listen, I remember, what was it? You, you may have the time frame better in your mind than I do. Long form journalism is dead. Both print, both TV, it's dead. This is a this is a generation where they have they're they're the Twitter generation and it's 140 characters and it's 45 second bites and you can't stream something that's longer than four minutes so we don't want it and I know I felt concerned and probably you did as well especially as a as a prolific writer of books even and I guess what I don't think that's the case I think you show me a really good story. You tell me something, you inform me, and you can entertain me along the way. And I think that there is absolutely a place for it. And I, and I think that there always will be. Now, I may just be an old dinosaur in denial, but I, but I sure hope not. And I, and I don't think that I am. I'm going to throw this at you as a final thought. You and I, we're starting up the Mainline Chronicle again. <laughs> I'll pay you 18000 a year. You can be the sports editor. I'll be the uh, news editor. Big bucks coming in. You with me? Listen, there's, uh, I would not change the way that I came up in this business for anything. It taught me that we, all the things we talked about, the value of hard work, having no life, paying the dues. There is a reason that they call it paying dues. I had a young journalist one time, dead serious, 
came up to me and said, she said to me, how do I get all your connections? How do I get your Rolodex? How do I get, and I just, yeah. I just sort of slumped and I go, be in the business 10 years, make your relationships. Nothing comes easy. Nothing should be handed to anybody. And I think that there is a reason when you work that hard and when you, when you go through all these trials and tribulations, that's what builds who you are as a journalist. And, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up what, what I went through for anything. I, I love the experience I had. I love when someone you don't know reaches out to you over email and says, Hey, Andrea, or Hey, Jeff, whatever. I love your work. Is there any way you can put me in contact with blank, blank and blank? And it's like, mm, yeah, no, sorry. No. Right. Okay. right. No, I, I agree. But you know, that's why it's, it's probably why you teach as well. Right. I, I tell my students the first day of class, I do not profess to know everything. But I know something after 30 plus years in this business, and I'm going to share with you everything that I, I can, because I never had anybody that did that with me. And I think that it's really important. You can, and I, I tell them, I also tell them, I said, there's times that I'm going to, I'm going to say things to you and it's going to, you're, you're going to roll your eyes or in and out of one ear, but I promise you at some point, it could be a day, a month, a year, 10 years, you're going to come back and say, that's what she was talking about. And it actually happened to one of my students lately. And she said, I, I heard this in class and I thought I'd never encounter this. And then I encountered it. And I knew exactly what you were talking about. So look, when you, when you think that the light is going off for them, man, that is, that is so gratifying for me. It yep. is, it's really, it's really wonderful and something that I take very seriously. I agree. Why, well, Andrea, I appreciate your time. I'm a huge fan. I really am an admirer of your work. I feel like we have similar uh, approaches to interviewing and just this business. So, um, you know, thank you so much for doing this. Well, it, it was my pleasure, and I, and I think that it's really it's so important to, to keep supporting each other, especially journalists. That's what I mean by the each other part it, it, during, during these tenuous times, and, uh, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing competition oh, yeah. that you nice. and Jonathan are doing because, again, I think it's just, it's, it shows encouragement for student journalists that are out there, and I think that uh, the, the caliber of people that you have involved in the project uh, I'm proud to be included in that group is, is really terrific. And again, it's all about what we can help uh, with the next generation because journalism can't go anywhere. Right, Jeff? I agree. 100%. I want to thank today's guest, Andrea Kramer, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Andrea on Twitter at Andrea underscore Kramer and catch her work all over the tube. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>